Hello, Crossroads family. Thanks for worshiping with us today, whether you're here in person or worshiping online or also at our West Campus. And thanks for uh, just donning the mask. I know this has felt like an eternity of a season, but uh, we're just trying to really be respectful of those around us and do our part to like, get this thing stopped. That's what our hope is. And we're praying just even more than wearing masks. So thank you for continuing to uh, just uh, lean into this with us. You know, uh, I get asked often, like, what's it like to be a pastor? And there's a long list to that answer that question. But I think one of the highlights for me of being a pastor is just having a front row seat to see what God is doing in the lives of people. I mean, it's amazing to watch him work, to change lives and to just bless people and, and to just have a front row seat to see his activity in the world around us is really incredible. And I feel honored and privileged if I can play any role in that. Uh, there's some downsides, though. I think one of the downsides and one of the things I'd say I've sacrificed uh, being in this uh, line of work is just not being close uh, to my immediate family. Meaning uh, when I was growing up as a preacher's kid, both sets of my grandparents, all my aunts and uncles and cousins lived hours away. And we hardly ever got to see them because when they were free on the weekend, well, a vocational hazard of being a pastor is your weekends are pretty tied up. And so that is actually true for my family. Like my kids have lived away from their grandparents and, and cousins and things like that. And so what God has done is he's substituted some surrogate grandparents, aunts, uncles, and cousins into my life. And I'm incredibly grateful for many of them, especially a lot of them have come through the, our church family. One special person in my life is a lady named Anne. And in fact, our family calls her Granny Anne because she really served as a grandparent to me growing up. And Granny Anne was very active in our life. Her and her husband, Steve. Steve passed away unexpectedly pretty early. And so we had a long, a long time with uh, Granny Anne. Actually, she just passed away a year ago at age 101. And Granny, and there's lots of special moments that we share. One of our favorite things is her Christmas cookies. Literally, she would make hundreds of dozens of cookies, it felt like, but they would just be showered upon us, a small portion of them. And that was just a, something we looked forward to every Christmas. But there was something unusual about our, my relationship with Granny Ann. Like I said, she was very encouraging and active in our life, my siblings and my parents. And when you would tell Granny Ann about something exciting or meaningful in your life, she always responded the exact same way. She would say, big deal. Like you would say, hey, Granny Ann, I just got invited to go to prom and I'm really excited about my date. And she would say, big deal. And I'd say like, ah, I'm really excited. My high school choir is going to go to Europe on a tour and I get to go and it's really exciting. And she'd say, big deal. Or I'd say, I got accepted into college and I'm getting a scholarship. And she would say, big deal. Like for Granny Ann, it really was a big deal to her. But to when you heard those words from her, you kind of felt them a little bit hollow, right? Well, last weekend in our year-long journey through the Gospel of John, as we're trying to learn how to live in love like Jesus, we saw a big deal moment in the life of Jesus. And it really, truly was a big deal. It was the raising of Lazarus. And that moment really was, was significant. It was like the paramount moment in Jesus' public ministry. In fact, it was the moment that John says was the greatest of all signs, where it was truly obvious that Jesus is truly God's son, Messiah, fully God, fully man. He is the big deal. And as we looked at that, both Andrew Bondurant here in Newburgh and Matt Volkman at the West Campus, they unpacked some just takeaways for us as we think about dealing with suffering, as we think about dealing with death, 
So we think about how to live and love like Jesus. And today we're going to see two very different reactions to this big deal, raising Lazarus from the dead. You can turn there with me if you have a copy of the Bible. John chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And we're going to finish the rest of that chapter today. We see two reactions. And the first reaction is this. It's a reaction of faith. John 11 verse 45. Therefore, meaning because Lazarus had been raised from the dead, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and who had seen what Jesus did believed in him. John states clearly that those who witness Lazarus coming back to life put their faith in Jesus. This is not the same kind of faith that we've seen recorded earlier in the Gospel of John. Like in John chapter 2 where Jesus does some miracles in Jerusalem, it said many people believed in him. But it's not the same type of belief that we're talking about here. When Jesus fed the 5,000, many people believed in him. But what they really wanted is just more bread. We also see when Jesus teaches in John chapter 8 that he's the light of the world. Many people like believe that, but, but this belief was different. It's set aside. It's a, an authentic faith, a firm faith, a, a faith that is fully committed to Jesus. And it's an actual fully com, uh, just fulfillment of John's whole purpose in writing the gospel of John, that all would believe. This sign was significant. It was a big deal. It proved who Jesus said he was. But there was a second reaction we see in verse 46. It was a reaction of fear. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Similar to the man that was healed at the pool of Bethesda who was paralyzed, some reacted in a negative way to this moment of Jesus. It was clear from the original language and the context around this passage, they knew exactly what they were doing. Nobody likes a tattletale, do they? I mean, but these people rushed to the Pharisees to report on Jesus. They knew the animosity that existed between Jesus and the Pharisees. They knew that this was a big deal. Listen to how their fears kind of played out and what they thought might happen as a result. Continue in verse 47. The chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. It's one of the first moments in John where we see the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest ruling body in Judaism. It was responsible for protecting and maintaining the Levitical law in the Old Testament. It was in charge of investigating accusations or violations against the law. And it also was in charge of assessing claims made by any person who claimed to be a prophet or the Messiah. The, they were a big deal, or so they thought. The Sanhedrin was kind of like the United States Supreme Court, you could say. It was made up of 70 men, Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were presided over by a high priest. The Pharisees are people that we've become familiar with. They got their name from being called the separated ones. They were scribes. Their job was to translate the Old Testament and to teach its law in the synagogues. They were to serve as religious examples. They were legalists, but they were also separatists. They lacked political power. Their biggest contribution was to create traditions or other man-made laws that would help protect people from violating the Old Testament law. The problem was, though, they elevated these traditions to be as authoritative as Scripture. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were known for being hypocritical, envious, rigid, 
even ritualistic. The Sadducees might be a group of people you are unfamiliar with. Sadducees were actually just the name given to priests. If you were a chief priest, you were part of the Sadducees. In fact, we see that term chief priest all throughout the New Testament. They were worldly and political. They were known as the aristocrats of Judaism. They, have, they were theologically unorthodox. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. Someone has described them as being rather boorish, rude to each other, and loving to argue or debate. Politically, the Sanhedrin walked this tightrope between trying to be in favor with the people of Jewish uh, faith and also answering to Rome. Their ultimate goal was really just survival. And you can see from this conversation, they felt threatened by Jesus and they were concerned about the security and maintaining the Pax Romana with Rome, their oppressor. This miracle of Jesus, especially now raising Lazarus from the dead, it was, he, he was gaining quite a following. And the people believed that if people felt like he was the Messiah, they would want him to lead a rebellion against Rome. Many false prophets have tried that in the first century and been squashed by Rome. So they faced a dilemma. Should they stand by while Jesus continues to do these miraculous signs and people continue to follow him? Or should they move against Jesus? They found that hard because he was so popular and so convincing. They feared if they didn't step in that Rome would take away the temple as well as the, um, their nation. They call it our temple or our nation. You can hear the possessiveness in that, even the fear in their words. They feared Rome and they also feared their own people. So they had to come up with a plan. They asked themselves, what should we do? Because this man keeps doing miracles. Notice they didn't refute the miracles. They just knew that they had to do something about it. They chose not to believe in Jesus. They could have accepted Jesus as the Messiah and seen the signs as true signs of God's power and glory revealed by Jesus as the Messiah. They could have responded in faith and worship and praise. But instead, their fear got the best of them. Jesus was too big of a threat of their national, economic, and religious status. I mean, if they lost the temple and their faith, they would lose their place. So enter Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. He was kind of like the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And while the Old Testament states that a, that a high priest would keep their position all throughout their life, Caiaphas was actually appointed by Rome. Annas was the first uh, uh, high priest during this time and he was actually removed by Rome and inserted Caiaphas. Caiaphas is known as maintaining the, the longest run of a high priest under Roman rule, 18 years. And what that tells us about Caiaphas is that he's really good at his job, navigating between the Jewish people and Rome. Do you realize that every one of us has influence? The question is like, how do we use that influence as a parent, as, a, as an employee, as a manager, as a neighbor, just as a person in this church? How do we Leverage that influence for the things of God, not just the, for the things of us. I'm really excited that once, again, once a, again this year, Crossroads is participating in the Global Leadership Summit. And that's a two-day event, August 6th and 7th, that helps answer those two questions. Recognizing I have influence, and second of all, how am I using that influence? I'd encourage you, wherever you find your influence, at home, at work, in the church, at school, in this community, 
I'd encourage you to participate in GLS. This year, it's an extremely virtual event, which means you won't go to any one place. You can watch it at home. You can watch it at your business. You can watch it anywhere and, and build a watch party with friends. The cost is $99 up until the 21st, which is this Tuesday. And I'd encourage any person that calls Crossroads home to check out the GLS and plan on being part of it. Let's see how Caiaphas used his influence. We see it recorded there in verse 49 and 50. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it would be better for one or better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. When it says that Caiaphas was high priest that year, it doesn't mean that just one year. What it means is, is that remarkable year, that year that was fateful. And it, it all revolves around the events of Jesus' life. In fact, we're getting ready to turn the page into the last week of Jesus' life. His response to the discussion that they, about what to do with Jesus is extremely condescending. I think Caiaphas could have benefited from attending the Global Leadership Summit and some of the leadership principles there. But the way he responded is, is right in line with how the Sanhedrin did business. They were very barbarous toward each other. And his simple conclusion is this. It's better for us that one man die than for the whole nation to perish. If you're a Star Trek fan, you might recognize even some words of Spock in this moment. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That's really kind of a, the basis of utilitarianism. That basically just honors and values the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Self-preservation, pack mentality, pulling the monkey down into the barrel, those are not new sports in our culture today, even though there's lots of divisiveness that surrounds us in our culture. We can't let a coworker work hard because then it'll kind of raise the temperature for the rest of us when it comes to work ethic. If one person follows the rules, then the rest of us will have to follow the rules. Well, there was too much to lose for the religious leaders for Jesus to be allowed to continue. This one person couldn't ruin it for everyone else. And Caiaphas uses sacrificial language, meaning that it would be best for Jesus to die as a scapegoat in order to spare the nation and its leaders. He's good with Jesus dying so that everyone else won't have to. What Caiaphas is saying is not ironic. It's actually prophetic. Look at verse 51. It says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. God had revealed to Caiaphas that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and he would unify all of God's people. When Caiaphas spoke of Jesus' death as substitutionary to protect his interests and the interests of the religious leaders, God was revealing a greater significance that Jesus' death was there to remove death and sin for all who believe. While Caiaphas is thinking only political, John wants us to realize that Jesus truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think we actually see two prophecies in what Caiaphas had to say there. The first is this, Jesus would die for the sins of the world. If you've been following with us all throughout the Gospel of John, this is not new news. You know that that's the mission, the work of God that God had sent Jesus to do. In fact, when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the very first time in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world. I think each of the I am statements that we've been looking at over the last several weeks actually point to this reality. In the other gospels, Jesus just comes right out and says it. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Matthew 26 verses one through five actually parallel this moment with Caiaphas and the religious leaders. And Jesus in that moment is very clear and says to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Just like God spoke through a donkey in the Old Testament, I think in this moment, God is speaking through Caiaphas, the truth about who Jesus is. The second prophecy is that Jesus would unite all those who believe in one family. Now, this has also been clearly stated all throughout the Gospel of John. We'll see more about this oneness motive in, in John 14 through 17. Just recently, we saw John speak about this, or Jesus speak about this in John 10, when he was describing himself as the great shepherd. And Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. God's family is big. And it's very diverse. It's made up of people from all walks of life, all kinds of language groups, all kinds of nationalities, all kinds of ethnicities. And if we're not really interested in that, we're really not going to like heaven. Because when the Bible describes heaven, it says all of us are gathered as one, worshiping the lamb who was slain. And it's from every time, a tribe, every tongue, every nation. God's family is big and it's diverse. And that's one of, the, one of the things that motivates and even influences our outreach strategies here as a church. Locally and globally, we want God's family to grow and be expanded from all people, from all walks of life. And so we work hard to work toward unity, both within this community and across the world. We want to continue down that same pattern. You and I should be eternally grateful that Jesus fulfilled both of these prophecies because I'm 100% sure that everybody hearing my voice today is guilty of sin. And I'm also pretty convinced that 99.99% of us are not Jewish. It's obvious that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the Lamb of God. He is fully God and fully man. And I believe that the religious leaders were so convinced of this, they had to do something about it. And so in verse 53, it says, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. By plotted, it actually means more resolved. In their minds, Jesus had already been found guilty. And we'll see Caiaphas again in chapter 18, pronouncing judgment on Jesus, guilty as charged. You see, the Sanhedrin decided an innocent man should be sacrificed to retain their place in the nation. And Jesus, on the other side, was ready to sacrifice himself so that everyone would have their place in heaven. Let's see how the rest of the chapter ends. Verse 54. Therefore, because uh, they had plotted to kill Jesus, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem and for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. Jesus wasn't escaping or avoiding his uh, ultimate work that God had called him to do, to die. 
He was trusting God with the timing and he was also making it clear that it was his choice, his mission to lay down his life. Luke 9 verse 51 says that as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is the turning point for the religious leaders and for Jesus. In fact, it's the point of no return for him. Jesus will soon go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival and will become the Passover lamb. And many are anticipating his arrival and the religious leaders, they're ready to put an end to things. Can you see the contrast? The religious leaders, they weren't willing to let go of what was good for them. They would let Jesus die. While on the other side, Jesus was willingly laying down his life for the good of others. I think that's an example for us to follow and consider as we think about living and loving like Jesus. The religious leaders refused to embrace who Jesus is, to place their faith in him out of fear of losing what they had. They didn't recognize or realize that what Jesus offered them was so much better than anything that they had. Abundant life here and now and eternal life when this life is over. And they wrestled between the two. I wonder if you recognize or can feel that same struggle in your life. Do you struggle with the need to be loved or to belong or to be accepted by people instead of just embracing the love and acceptance that God has offered you or even that of your spiritual family? Are you so focused on being rewarded or recognized for your achievement or your accomplishments rather than just faithfully obeying and serving God and following Jesus? Do you try to have stuff for yourself rather than be generous to God and others? Do you cram your schedule filled with things for yourself or your family instead of serving others in need? Do you deny, hide, or just wallow in your guilt instead of letting conviction lead you to repentance and basking in God's grace? You see, guilt, it demoralizes and it will depress, but conviction motivates, it redirects. Jesus is perfectly clear that to follow him, we must abandon all other things. And Jesus is also clear that he abandoned everything so that we could have what he comes to bring. In every encounter we see between Jesus and another person, there is a great exchange. There's wine for water. There's sight for blindness. There's walking for paralysis. There's food for many from food for one. There's life for for death. Jesus welcomes for rejection. He trades purpose for poverty. He trades meaning for activity. He trades grace for guilt. Several years ago, I heard a a poem, uh, actually a, a a parable that was written by a guy named Walter Wangren Jr. I was not familiar with Walter Wangren until this week when I went looking for this poem that he had written. He's a famous author. He's actually a professor and pastor. In fact, he served on the faculty of the University of Evansville for 18 years teaching English. Most of the things that he's written have spiritual connotations. Uh, They can be seen as commentary on the Bible. And he's best known for fables. In fact, while he was serving on the University of Evansville staff, he pastored a church here in the inner city of Evansville. I like Walter's heart. One of his most famous uh, fables is called The Ragman. And you can find The Ragman written in a book he calls Ragman and Other Creeds of Faith. And that is a collection of about 30 plus fables. And I'd like for you just to listen to just a summary of this fable called Ragman. 
Walter writes that there was a man who, who saw someone walking through the streets early one morning who was pulling a cart, and this cart was filled with all kinds of rags. And as the man who was tall and handsome and intelligent walked through the streets, he wondered, is there no other job for this man other than to peddle rags in the streets of the city? And yet as he walked in a tenor voice, he said, rags, rags, old rags for new rags, new rags for old rags, bring me your old rags, I'll give you new rags. And he watched as this rag man made his way through the streets. And the first person he encountered was a woman who was weeping and she was wiping her tears with a handkerchief. And he approached her and said, rags, rags, new rags for old rags. And he simply gently took the handkerchief from her hand and replaced it with a clean, clean linen towel. And immediately her, her tears were dry. As the rag man took that handkerchief and wiped his brow, suddenly he began to cry. As, I, as he continued to watch the ragman walk through the streets, he noticed that he encountered another young girl. And this young girl had a bandage around her head and there was blood coming from her forehead. And he offered her rags, rags, new rags for old rags. And he simply took that bandage from her head and offered her a yellow bonnet. And as she put the yellow bonnet on her head, she was immediately healed. And as he wrapped her bandage on his head, his forehead began to bleed. As he continued down the, the path, he saw a man leaning up against the telephone pole and he said, do you have work? And when the man stepped away from the pole, he noticed that the left sleeve of his jacket was tucked into a pocket, missing an arm. And the man said, rags, rags, let me have your jacket. I'll give you a new jacket. And the rag man took the man's jacket and put it on, immediately losing his arm, giving him a new jacket, restoring both arms to strength. And now as the ragman pulled that cart through the city streets with one arm, he stumbled upon a man who was laying in the ditch covered with an old army blanket. And he set a new pair of clothes beside the man and he took up that army blanket and wrapped it around him. And he became weak and old and withered. And he watched as the ragman made his way outside of the city limits up to the, the dump. And he climbed up to the top of the dump and he made himself a, a place to lie down. Tired, old, withered, wounded, and he died. The man who'd watched this all take place, he, he hit an old car just to kind of watch what would take place next. And he fell asleep on Friday, on Saturday, on Sunday. He was woken with this violent earthquake until which he looked up to the top of the, the heap of trash and he saw the ragman, ragman now victorious, no wounds, no withered, no, no weakness. And he saw him triumphant. And he went to the ragman and he, and he said, please take all that I have. And he received all that the ragman could bring him. Now, Walter Wangren wrote that to represent the power of what we've seen all throughout the gospel of John. That every time Jesus approaches someone, he asks them to let go of what they're holding on so tightly, just like the religious leaders. So they can lay hold of what Jesus came to bring them. And that invitation has been evident from the very first chapter of John. John 1 verse 11 through 13 says this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that in the message. He said this. He came to his own people, but they did not want him. But whoever did want him, who believed who was, he was who he claimed and would do what he said, 
he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. The religious leaders, they missed out. They held on to what they thought was so important. They chose not to believe. They responded in fear. Don't make that same mistake today. Don't hold on to anything else other than Jesus. Respond in faith, in full realization that there is nothing better than Jesus. We're going to close our service today just by singing that phrase one more time. The song we sang earlier where it just says, there is nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. I hope that's not just words we'll say today or something we'll sing, but it actually becomes the mantra of how we live, not just for one hour on Sunday, but this afternoon and tomorrow and three days from now, that every day that we live would be motivated and filtered through. There's nothing that this world has, has offered us that's worth holding on to. There's only thing that's one thing that's worth it, and that's Jesus. And I pray that you will follow him today full of faith and full recognition of that. Would you stand with us? Let's pray together and let's sing. God, thank you for revealing to us that Jesus is more important. He's, he's more powerful. He's fully God and fully human. And that sets him apart from anything else, anyone else in this world. God, I pray that we wouldn't settle for fool's gold. God, we wouldn't be enamored by the things that this world that sparkle or make us feel good or think that we're told we need, but we would hold on to with faith who Jesus is and all that he came to bring us, abundant life here on earth, eternal life, life everlasting. And in him, we would find the greatest thing that we could ever have. And that's you. And we pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.